with me in prayer. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As this coronavirus has brought complete upheaval to our society, it is legitimate to ask how the social structures might change. Will the family structure grow stronger after we have been spending so much time together? Will the government become more authoritarian? Will businesses become more automated? Will society be less cohesive because we are practicing more social distancing? What about the church? Will its place in society change? Should it change? I don't know the answer to uh, most of those questions, but I do know the answer about the church because our passage answers this question for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ set the foundations of the church. It is a foundation that will not erode or be washed away by the, 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 the tides of society, societal upheaval. No matter how much society changes, Christ's church and its mission are unchanging. In our passage, Jesus is laying the foundation for his church by training the disciples to be his successors. And so we see in verse 1, And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He called the twelve together. Why not thirteen? Why did he not? Why did he choose twelve, not twenty-five? It was a deliberate choice. The disciples were to be the, the successors of the twelve tribes of Israel. The book of Revelation makes this very clear when it describes the new Jerusalem. And so it says in the book of Revelation, it had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the, name, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were written the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And so there's a oneness between the tribes the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, apostles that served as the, serve as the foundation for the church. The church, in other words, is the ongoing people of God. It's the new Israel. That's why the Apostle Paul calls the Galatian church, or the Gentile church in Galatia, the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. That's why Peter uses language that describes the Old Testament Israel to describe the church when he says in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 explicitly refers to the foundational role of the apostles and links it with the Old Testament role of the prophets. When it says, so then, you are no longer 
strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. The church is not an invention by the later church fathers, but was established by Jesus Christ himself. There's this idea that worshiping Jesus is good, trusting in Jesus is good, but being involved in the church is bad because the church is a human invention, man-made, and so we should avoid the, the religious structure of the church and only worship Jesus. And uh, our passage gives the lie to that notion. And then there's this other idea that the church was plan B or a parenthesis because God's real intention was to continue on to deal with the physical uh, nation of Israel. But Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says that the church and the true Israel are one in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, we read, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, talking to Gentiles, have been brought near. Brought near to what? Brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. Brought near to the covenants of promise. So they've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus Christ has established his church. Societal upheaval will not bring it down. Nor will societal upheaval change the mission of the church. We can see the essence of the mission of the church in verses 1 and 2, and so I'll, I'll repeat uh, verse 1 and read the first two verses. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. First of all, we should notice in verse 2 that Jesus sent them out. The church from its very foundation was, was on the go. He sent them out. The Great Commission, in fact, assumes that the church will, will be on the go. It begins, uh, we, mu- we know it, uh, to say, go therefore and make disciples. The word go is actually a participle, and so uh, literally it should be re- read, as you're going, make disciples. It assumes we're going to be on the go. And the very word apostle means sent one. Jesus built the importance of the church to be on the go right in the name that he gave to his foundational disciples. In other words, going is in the DNA of the church. Therefore, we as a local congregation must have an attitude of being eager to go. And of course, James chapter 1 says, 
The attitude's not enough. If you have the attitude and you're not going, he says you're not being obedient. And so, of course, we must be going. We must be going as a body. We must be going as individual Christians. But we must be on the go. What were the disciples doing as they were on the go? Well, they were to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The ministry of preaching took a central place in the ministry of Jesus. So it's not surprising that it would be the primary task um, that Jesus would assign to his disciples when he sent them out. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ remains the church's central focus. Sinners need to be reconciled to God. That is mankind's greatest need. In all this uncertainty, in all this sickness, in all these reports daily of death and, uh, and, and uncertainty, the real need of the world is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no need that is greater than the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul makes this point by asking a series of questions uh, in Romans chapter 10. He says, How then that will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Preaching is vital. It's necessary because the world needs Jesus. Hell has its mouth open wide. People are falling off into eternity without God each and every day. Hour by hour, minute by minute. They need the Lord Jesus. How are they going to hear? The church has to open its mouth, faithfully proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The disciples were also to heal. This um, included the curing of diseases and casting out demons. Again, this was a central focus for Jesus in his ministry to authenticate um, his preaching and his God-given authority. And so that was the purpose of the healing for the disciples as well, to show that they were being sent with Jesus' authority, with God the Father's authority. Although God uh, continues to heal people, the church no longer has people who have the gift of healing like the apostles. Otherwise, they'd be single-handedly bending the virus curve. They'd be more effective than chloroquine. Although we do not have people with the gifts of healing, the evangelistic ministry of the church is not limited to preaching. We also have to, to, to uh, be, we are to be loving with deeds of mercy. Our Meals on Wheels ministry is a great example of this type of mercy. We preach the gospel, and with hands of love, we go and serve the least and the lost. So to summarize, the church is called to go, is called to prioritize the proclamation of the gospel, 
and alongside the preaching, there must be deeds of mercy. Let's move on to verses 3 through 6. Jesus gave some very odd instructions to the disciples as he sent them out. Verses 3 through 6, And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whatever they do, they do not and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. I believe there are two reasons for these instructions. The first is theological. His instructions mirror the activities of the prophets in the Old Testament. And I'll make that argument when we get to Luke chapter 10 with the sending out of the 72. But the second reason for the instructions is more of a practical nature. Jesus is sending them out on their own without him. Uh, And this um, foreshadows the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ when he died on the cross and ascended into heaven. And so he was, he was, was not going to be with them to correct their mistakes or to answer their questions. In other words, this is an internship for the budding apostles. He's giving them some on-the-job training and the best lessons are learned by on-the-job training. When I went to Uganda and uh, all the other preachers, the, the ordained preachers, went down with the malaria, I was pressed into service in, in um, Bali. Uh, I was called to preach twice a day for a solid week. I didn't go down with malaria because uh, I actively held to my chloroquine regimen during that week, and God was gracious. But I was to preach two times a day for a solid week, and I had only preached three times in my life previous to that. That week in Bali was the best training in preaching that I've ever gotten. After the instruction is given, the best way to drive the teaching into the student's life is to make the student put into practice um, the things that were taught with only the slightest of a safety net so that the student is fearful of failure and will rise to the challenge. And frankly, failure is also a very effective teacher. Parents, as you're raising your children, give them on-the-job training. Let them stretch their wings without you standing uh, behind them and, uh, and, and giving them such comfort that they, they don't feel like they are um, having to learn uh, in their life the lessons that they need to learn. And so Jesus sent the disciples out to learn these lessons on the job training. I want to briefly examine some of the practical lessons Jesus wanted his disciples to learn. First and foremost, the lesson that they needed to learn was to trust in God. Jesus sent them out with his power and authority, but nothing else. 
No staff, no bag, no money, no bread. The only thing that they had were the clothes on their back. Uh, Reminds me of uh, one of the Philadelphia Eagles, old-time Philadelphia Eagles, when he would travel for an away game. All he would take with him was a toothbrush in his back pocket. Uh, He traveled light. And the reason why Jesus is instructing his disciples to travel light is Well, they were going to be confronted with their need to trust God, not only to trust God for the work of the ministry, but also for their basic needs. Um, When I was sent to preach in in Bali, I I had no prepared sermons. All I had was my Bible, a notebook, and a pen. And it was during that week that God taught me to pray. I knew how to pray, so I thought, God taught me to pray that week as he taught me to trust in him. This COVID-19 virus can be a tremendous blessing to God's people as we learn that we cannot simply lean on the medical community as much as we have been accustomed, but we must trust God. You know, I think that's been, the medical science has been one of the, um, the, the great idols of our generation. Previous generations, it was technology, the industrial revolution, machines, and, and we're going to be so great because we're able to build these machines. Now, uh, as a people, we think, well, we're invincible because we've got a prescription for just about everything that ails us. And along comes COVID-19. And now we have to remember what it means to trust God for our daily bread, for our daily health, for our day-by-day wellness. Look to the Lord. Trust Him. Don't waste this trial. Secondly, the disciples were to learn patience. Their provision would not be clear to them until they reached town. You know, They couldn't call ahead and make reservations at a hotel. Um... They had to wait to see if the town would be receptive to the preaching of the gospel and whether someone would be willing to give them housing. Now, for those of us who like to be in control of our circumstances, this would be a very difficult way to live. Again, the COVID-19 virus has come in and has completely destroyed our routines and our sense of being in control of our lives. When will it end? When will normalcy return? Who knows? God knows. Until then, we must patiently trust in Him. And I might remind you that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Look to the Lord. Ask Him for patience. He'll give it to you. Third, Jesus wanted the disciples to learn how to reject, to, to handle rejection. During their earthly ministry, Jesus was the one taking all the arrows. But once he ascended into heaven, he's not there to take the arrows. The disciples would be hated for being his disciples. Jesus warned them continually about this. Matthew chapter 10, he says, You are going to be put to death for my sake. Don't fear him who can put you to death. Fear him who can cast your soul into hell. Their preaching 
would receive far more rejection and disdain than reception and approval. You know, I really wish I could be effective in evangelism and well-liked by everyone. I've tried to do that, but that's not how it works. The Lord Jesus Christ is a stumbling stone because he tells people that they're sinners. Tells people that they are hell deserving. They are tell- the gospel tells people that they do not deserve God's love. But he is willing to love them anyway. And people don't like to hear that they are insufficient. That they are unrighteous. That they are sinners. And so, Jesus is preparing his disciples for rejection and disdain. Fourth, uh, the disciples were to learn about leadership. Mark's account adds the detail that that Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. In other words, none, none of the disciples could hide behind Jesus. They couldn't hide in the pack. Each person... Um, was stretched out in their leadership and in their decision-making skills as they looked to God and sought to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were stretched out in their leadership. Besides the the benefits for the disciples, this short-term missions trip that uh, Jesus sent them on bore great fruit for the kingdom of God. Suddenly, It seems as if Jesus is everywhere. Everybody through Galilee is abuzz about Jesus. Although Jesus was not with his disciples because they were, um, although he was not with his, present with his disciples because they were doing what he had been doing. He gets all the credit. So daily reports were flooding into Herod's office about this Jesus. Look at verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, I beheaded Or John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Because Jesus' disciples were doing what Jesus was doing, this led Herod to ask, Who is this Jesus? I would like to meet him. Isn't that what we are called to do? To so faithfully represent Jesus that people will ask the question, Who is this Jesus? especially during this uh, COVID-19 virus. People need the Lord Jesus Christ. They need Him more than the chloroquine, more than anything else. They need His righteousness. They need His forgiveness. They need His life. Are we as the church going to so represent Him that that the world will say, Who is this Jesus? As I'm concluding, I haven't touched on one of the most important phrases in this passage. In verse 1, Jesus gave his disciples authority and power to carry out their ministry. In the Great Commission, Jesus gave that same power and authority to the church. In other words, Christ has abundantly equipped us 
to be his witnesses. As this COVID-19 virus continues to bring about disruption and uncertainty to our nation, by God's grace, let us so faithfully serve him that people will ask, who is this Jesus? As we pray together, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us as we live on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, as we live in Christ's church, help us to be his representatives here on earth. Help us to take with his authority and his power the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Lord, we pray for a revival in the world. Lord, we pray that you would use us as instruments of your revival. As we lift this prayer in Jesus' name, amen.